Good morning. I have two readings this morning. And the first one is from John, chapter 11, 32 to 39. Now Mary reached the place where Jesus was, and she saw him and said, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, um, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, she was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have they laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, Show how, See how he loved him. And then some of them said, Could he have not opened his eyes of the blind and kept this man from dying? But Jesus, once more deeply moved, went to the tomb, and it was a cave where the stone had been laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the, the, the sister of the dead man, by this time he, there will be a bad odour, for he's been there for four days. Now the next reading is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Morning. Uh, for those uh, who don't know me, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the ministers here at Gosford Prezi. Uh, it has been, I hope you have found it as helpful a series as I have been, as um, we have gone through thinking about um, people's objections and uh, reasons for kind of doubting or wondering um, about the reality of God. Uh, and we come today to the topic of suffering and evil. And if there's one common human experience... It is the experience of suffering, isn't it? Kind of regardless of nationality, regardless of race, regardless of uh, when you were born, whether it's in the 1600s or in the 2016s, suffering is a reality. And actually the reality is we will never get to a stage medically or technology-wise when suffering will be absent or any form of suffering will be kind of just cease. So let's pray as we open up God's word and see what he has to say on on this topic. Let's pray. Our God and King, we ask this morning that you might Uh, help us to think well about this difficult topic. We pray that you might help us to think well um, uh, intellectually, but also to love people well where they are at. And with the hardships and the trials that people are going through, with the scars and weights that they carry. And we pray that you might help us this morning, shape and form us this morning, Um, so that we might better walk and navigate with other people, caring for other people in this life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, 
I forgot the clicker, Ames. Are you able to grab the clicker? Not the best start. Not the worst start, though, let's be honest. The argument for evil and suffering for God and why the two can't exist or um, that one is like water and the other is like oil, they can't kind of coexist, often goes like this, that if there is a good God, then he mustn't be all-powerful if there is evil and suffering in this world. In a world where children get cancer, in a world where there is divorce and disease, in a world where there is criticism and suffering, there cannot be a good God who is all-powerful. Perhaps there is an all-powerful God, uh, but perhaps he then would need, if there is evil and suffering in the world, and there is, then he must simply be apathetic towards it. He must not care. He must have zero concern about the hardship and the grief and the tragedies that so many of us endure or walk through. But there cannot be a good God and an all-powerful God and for us to still experience such evil and suffering in this world. And for some this is a a philosophical problem uh, as to doubting the existence of God, but for many others it's actually more of a personal issue. Um, how maybe God exists, maybe God doesn't exist, but if God exists, then he can't be trusted. Then he can't be trusted. I've said before, and I'll, I'll say it again, I think when it comes to this objection, and when people kind of raise this idea of suffering and evil and God and his goodness. Um, My experience has been this, that often the best thing to do is actually, people don't actually need you to give an answer. Often we feel like we need to give an answer, but that often is not what people themselves need. More often than not, in my experience, people simply that are asking this question just need someone who is uh, going to listen and empathise, just sit to grieve with those who grieve, and to say, yeah, it sucks. It's really hard. I remember getting uh, a call a couple of years ago. One of our youth group boys uh, was going for a walk uh, with his mother, and uh, he slipped and fell off the edge of a cliff. And he um, spent four hours at the bottom of the cliff. His mother kind of scaled down. And uh, while their uncle, who was with them, ran to get into kind of reception to be able to call for help. And they spent four hours there um, with him being unable to move, being paralysed, 
and while well, a helicopter came, uh, and I got the call. I got the call. This has happened because COVID's happening. You're the only one that can actually go in to the hospital because I carry a chaplain collar, right? As if that somehow makes me qualified to sit next to these parents and their 12-year-old son. And so I'm driving into the city and all this time I'm just thinking, what do you say, right? What do you do to, how do you counsel or walk with parents who are sitting at the bedside of their little boy? More often than not, simply being the shoulder that is there and any kind of attempts, and and often I've said this, any attempts when people have asked this question for me to kind of give an answer or to try to give you a, a kind of why, a reason why would just be cruel or wrong. Hearing well, listening well, feeling well. Grabbing a coffee with someone and saying, let me buy you a coffee and let's, I would love to hear this, this, you know, your grandma sounds like she was a real special lady and I would love to just hear how she was so special and the way that she's kind of impacted and shaped you, right? More often than not, that will do more good than some kind of mathematical, logical, philosophical answer, right? But for those who maybe this is more of a philosophical question or objection, for those who want more of kind of a a logical answer to this, often I have found most helpful is a story, and that's a story... I was listening to, I share about how a couple of years ago I was listening to an interview of a mother and her son had this hyper rare medical condition uh, where, um, uh, I have, have it written down but um, there's no way I'm going to be able to pronounce the medical condition so I'll leave that to Chris. Um, but the medical condition meant that her son was unable to ever feel or experience pain. So he could never experience pain. And uh, the camera crew, they were having this interview with the mother, and the mother said this, and it just struck me, because I just thought, man, you just, it's not the usual thing a mother prays. She said, I pray every day that my precious little boy would feel pain. And I just remember kind of going, that's not a normal mother's prayer. Like Amy and I pray for the boys every night. Not once has she prayed that prayer for the boys. And yet here's why. Because she knows that her son's ability never to feel pain is actually life-threatening for him and extremely dangerous because her boy 
can be uh, walking around and step on a rusty nail and never realise it. He can cut his hamstring and he can start bleeding out and he never knows that he needs desperate medical attention. And often I have said, I wonder, I wonder if perhaps evil and suffering in this life, in this world, is maybe not the same thing. Perhaps it is that suffering is to the soul what pain is to the body. That suffering is to the soul what pain is to the body. That is, alarm bells ringing, senses, red flags going off saying, something is dramatically wrong. That you need help, you need assistance. That you're bleeding out. that perhaps it is that if we were to go about this life never experiencing any pain or suffering, we would never know. We would never know that something was dramatically wrong with our relationship with God. And we would bleed out, never, never going to hospital, never seeking the great doctor, Perhaps suffering is the desperate alert that something is not as it should be. You see, the problem with the equation of either God is good and but not all-powerful and so there is evil and suffering, or either God is all-powerful but he doesn't care, he's apathetic, he doesn't care that we suffer, uh, and so there's evil and suffering, is it presumes that an all-powerful, all-good God, that there is no purpose to evil and suffering. You see, is it not possible that an all-powerful, all-good God might allow evil and suffering, but not purposeless evil and suffering? Not purposeless evil and suffering. And so the objection actually is extremely reliant on just because you think evil and suffering and that you see in the world has no purpose behind it or no reason for it, just because it appears pointless to you, then it must be pointless, is a pretty big claim. In fact, that it, because evil and suffering appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless, is such a big claim that in 1996, uh, a philosophical journal, not a Christian, not a religious journal, a philosophical journal, the largest one globally actually, uh, wrote this, they wrote, the attempt to disprove God by the argument of evil and suffering 
is now acknowledged on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. Because there is a realisation that an all-powerful, all-good God perhaps would allow suffering and evil to an extent that maybe it would bring about some good or serve a greater purpose. Just like how a loving parent might allow some form of pain or discipline in the sphere of their child in order to bring about greater good in them. And the scriptures are, and in our life, uh, we have seen many, many examples of people whose suffering has brought about great good. So, uh, for those who weren't here, uh, we just did, uh, uh, we closed out a massive series in the book of Genesis. And the character that gets the most spotlight in the book of Genesis, as far as page for page, word for word, is Joseph. And Joseph would never have gone from the the self-absorbed, egotistical, at the very least kind of ignorant of the way that his actions affect other people and their feelings. He would never have gone from that self-centered boy to be the selfless leader and agent for social change that he goes on to be, if he hadn't have endured the trials and false allegations, if he hadn't have been refined by the fires of suffering. Haven't you seen it? In my life, here's what I've experienced. Uh, When suffering hits people, so often it actually makes them more selfless. In fact, sometimes, because I do a lot of work with teenagers, um, you know, it's really common, like a 17-year-old boy, and the way that they think, and the way that they act, and kind of everything is about them, and them, and them, and them. And sometimes, like their parents, they might kind of be complaining to me, or something like that, saying, oh, my boy, he's a nightmare, whatever, whatever. Just hear, listen, remember, they don't need you to correct them. They, they know, that's their trial, that's their hardship, that's their suffering. And sometimes, here's what I say, they just need to suffer a little. When, when life comes, hardship will come, and that suffering will kind of refine them. It will grow them. You know, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, character, hope. Would Van Gogh have painted such beautiful works if he hadn't have endured such depression, so much pain? Aren't the great actors, the great directors, the great Those who are great in the arts. Name someone who is great in the arts who has not suffered. Would Nelson Mandela have changed the nation the way he did if he hadn't have gone through, 
if he hadn't have endured the imprisonment of Robin Prison. And for many of us, many of us, we would never have chosen the path and the suffering of a marriage breakdown, of the death of a friend, of, of a medical condition. We would never have chosen those things. And yet, through those things, we have gra- gained a greater dependence upon God, greater friendships, greater strength and perseverance and patience, greater appreciation for life, things that we, even though we would never have chosen that path, we wouldn't trade for the world. And they grew in the pot of suffering. And that doesn't mean that suffering is kind of a maths equation. Um, that's the, that's the purpose of Job, right? The purpose of the book of Job is this, that suffering is not a maths equation. It's not, you do, it's not karma. It's not, you do something bad, something bad then is going to happen to you. Or if you are suffering, it's because you've done something bad. It's, it's not one plus one equals two. So, you know, the world is more complex than that. But it does mean that the promise of the scriptures is that suffering isn't meaningless. And especially for those who are in Christ, that the very worst evils of your life, the most painful things of your life will be used for your good and for his glory. That's Romans 8, right? God works all things for the good of those who love him. All things. All doctors' diagnoses. All car crashes. All losses of job. All criticism. All friendship breakdown. God works all things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Notice that it says for, for the good, not for the, the happiness, right? Because we all know that there's a difference between your good and your happiness. And we kind of want the happiness, but we know really the good is actually the best thing for us. And that might not mean an easy life. And so the call, and the call in our second passage was, therefore do not look to what is seen, but look to what is unseen. That in the light of eternity, our, our, Light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory, whether that's cancer or criticism, divorce or dementia. Don't look to what is seen, look to what is unseen. 
And it doesn't mean that you need to kind of put on a mask and pretend like suffering isn't hard. It doesn't mean you need to kind of romanticize it or dress it up. It doesn't mean that just because God brings good out of evil, that evil isn't evil. Cancer still sucks. Death is still a tragedy. Hardship is still hard. Tears are still tears. Broken bones are still broken bones. And sorrow still hits deep in the stomach. Yes, God can bring good. But evil and suffering are still evil and suffering. And the Bible is works very hard to hold those two. God can bring good out of evil, but evil is still evil. And evil is not good. And that's where you get John 11, right? And I've kind of used this passage before to make a similar point. But in John 11, you get Jesus going to one of his closest friend's tombs. And he arrives there on the fourth day and Mary and Martha arrive and Jesus sees their, their crying and he sees their tears and he sees all the village kind of weeping and the sorrow and the mourning and, and the, you know, in that culture, you know, deep emotion. You don't need to pretend to celebrate life. It's like death sucks and so people are tearing their clothes, right? Bearing it all. And Jesus gets to his friend's tomb, and verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And I said this before, the hard thing is, uh, the Greek word is, like they're trying to translate the Greek word there, but the word for deeply moved and troubled in spirit is actually the word to kind of snarl and be in, in anger. And actually, um, its origin is from uh, a war horse. If you think of a battle horse, as they're preparing to charge, they kind of, <laughs> they're kind of snarling, right? That's, what the word is. That is what Jesus is doing. And he's not snarling in anger at those who are weeping. He's angry at the destruction that death is bringing on the canvas of his creation. And I told the story last time of uh, a man who was struggling to trust God with the loss of his child and he had heard a thousand stories about how God was not a stranger to pain, how God himself was not a stranger to loss and knew what it means to suffer and that Jesus himself wept and all, all of these things. And he said, it was not until I realized that Jesus was angry at death, that I could find rest in him. 
It was not until I heard that Jesus was angry at death, this is a father who has lost his son, that I found I could find rest in him. That God is not apathetic towards these evils and sufferings. That he cares deeply. So much so that he is going to do something about it. So much so that Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb And in John's Gospel, it is in Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb to life that sentences Jesus to death. That in giving life to his closest friend, he himself is condemned to the cross. On Mondays, I meet uh, with Meg and and we chat about okay this Sunday what the passage is and we um, okay what the kids are doing kids church and how do we sync those up and and we're talking about how who God is because they they're doing these pictures of what God is like and we talked about how God is God is uh, going to be fixing the evil and suffering. And so our God holds a hammer. And so that's what the kids are doing there. Our God holds holds a hammer because he's fixing the evil, the brokenness, the suffering in this world. But we also talked about how our God holds a hammer, but he also holds nails in his hands. That our God holds a hammer because he's fixing the suffering and death and brokenness. But he has holes in his hands because the way he goes about fixing it is by drinking it to the bottom. And so you get the Garden of Gethsemane and you get Jesus trembling, his legs shaking, sweating drops of blood. And he says, if this cup, if there is any other way, Take this cup from me. And he drinks it to the bottom so that not a drop would be left for us. No other God has scars. No other God knows the coldness of iron in his wrists. No other God has the title, the man of sorrows. That God hates suffering and despises evil in the world more than you do. In fact, he despises it enough to do something about it. Not to stand at a distance, but to draw near. To partake himself in the suffering, rejection, in the grit and the grime of life. So that death and suffering will not have the last word. Albert Camus wrote this. He said, in the garden Christ, the God-man suffers too with patience. 
evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege. Do you hear that? It aban- divinity abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end. Despair included the agony of death. That on the cross, God gives up the traditional privilege of deity, that is, to sit in the clouds and to eat grapes, never knowing suffering and harm. That's the privilege that traditional deity has. And in the garden, Jesus gives that up. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Sam Sam Gamgee is there and uh, he realises that his friend Gandalf is alive. This whole time we've kind of known he has been alive, but it's been blinded to these two main characters. They haven't known it. They thought he was dead. And in this kind of final scene, in the last scene, Sam cries, he says, I thought you were dead. Then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Christianity is that, yes, on that final scene, on that final day, it will. That everything said is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be all the richer, all the greater, all the more beautiful, for having once been broken and lost. Let's pray. Our God and King, man of sorrows, we thank you that you do not stand at a distance. We thank you that you have, you draw near in order to do something about the evil and the suffering in the world, that you drink and consume it to the very last drop. so that we, on that last day, might experience your resurrection. That day when everything said will come untrue. And we thank you that everything said will come untrue in the end. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.